If someone asks you point blank, what did Jesus bring into your life? How would you answer that? What would you say? Well, he brought joy, he brought peace, he brought love and hope and purpose, a sense of commitment. You know, I hope that's true. And if someone asks you what he brought into your life, tell them. But be careful not to paint a picture that's too rosy. You know, we live in a a day when everyone wants positive messages. Sometimes the message we have to share doesn't sound positive at all. And Jesus was very straightforward when talking to his disciples. And there are some things that come into our life as a result of our relationship with him that's not not pleasant at all. He brings good things, but bad things come too. And he told his disciples what to expect. Before sending them out on their short-term mission... He kind of shocked them, I think, when he said that he had come to bring a sword, a cross, and a reward. So let's rethink this morning what it is that Jesus brings, beginning with a sword. We're in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 37. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, does that surprise you? You know, didn't Isaiah prophesy the coming of the Prince of Peace? And didn't the angels declare at his birth, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men? Well, actually, they said, And on earth peace, among men with whom he is pleased. <laughs> but still, isn't, isn't the gospel good news of peace? Well, yes and no. In Romans 5.1, we're told that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that through Christ, we can find peace with God. On the other hand, James tells us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And the converse is true. Peace with God means hostility in the world. A world in rebellion against God isn't going to be at peace with us if we are at peace with God. And that's why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Now, he's not actually declaring his ultimate purpose in coming here. He's simply acknowledging the result of his coming. It's not his desire to destroy peace and divide families. His ultimate goal is eternal peace and harmony. And Jesus is very pro-family. He wasn't too busy on the cross saving the world to make arrangements for his mother. And he chastised the Pharisees for avoiding their financial responsibilities to their parents under the guise of serving God. The end result of his coming into the world, however, is that many families will be divided. Why? Because the gospel divides men into two groups, those who accept it and those who reject it. It divides as cleanly as a soldier's two-edged short sword. It cuts through all classes and distinctions and family ties. And it puts you either on the inside or the outside. You remember the first sword we see in Scripture, the flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life. It established the fact that God controls who is and who isn't acceptable to him. And Jesus is pictured in the book of Revelation on a white horse, coming to judge all people with a sword that comes from his mouth. Indeed, Jesus brings the ultimate sword into the world. The sword that divides even the soul from the spirit, according to Hebrews 4. So yes, he brings peace, but not peace to all. He offers peace with God and he encourages us, so far as it depends on us, to be at peace with all men. But still, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides. It sets a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It makes a man's enemies the members of his own household. Now, again, this, this isn't God's desire. Jesus didn't come to earth for the express purpose of causing this to happen, but it does happen. And it happens when people rebel against God and when they fight against God's people. Now, the prophet Micah said the same thing was happening in his day, and it appears as if Jesus is actually quoting him. This wasn't something unique that Jesus was bringing to earth. It was the natural consequences of a divided world. If some accept God and others reject God, there's going to be conflict. Jesus also expressed it another way. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Obviously, if your parents or your children don't share your commitment to Christ, if they don't also put Christ first in their life, there's going to be conflict. Big conflict. He must 
come first. And Luke records Jesus on another occasion putting it this way. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, those are shocking words. And I think he chose them for their shock value. If he had simply said to the crowd, now, remember, I've got to come first in your life, nobody's going to remember that. But a command to hate your parents and children, you'd not forget that. In fact, you'd spend hours and maybe days mulling over what it must have meant. You know, surely Jesus wasn't telling us to hate our families. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. And older women are commanded to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. So he's not encouraging hatred in the household here. He's simply making it clear that the love we feel for our families should pale in comparison to our love for him. And it may even appear as indifference and hatred to someone who doesn't share our commitment. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, experienced firsthand the need to make a choice that may have looked to some like utter disregard for his family. By continuing to preach when ordered to stop, he was imprisoned for 12 years. He expressed the agony of having to make the decision to put Christ above his family with these words written a long time ago, as you'll note. The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship. I thought my blind one might go under, would break my heart to pieces, but but yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture you all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and his children, yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Bunyan was a man who loved his family deeply, but who loved Christ even more. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to hate our families 
for ourselves. But he does require that we put him first, even above self. And that's why he not only brings a sword, but also a cross. Verses 38 and 39. And he who does not take his own cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. You know, when Jesus spoke of taking up a cross, the apostles knew what he meant. Since he hadn't yet been crucified, it had no spiritual significance. It was simply an instrument of death. 2,000 Jews who had followed the insurrectionist Judas of Galilee had been crucified by the Romans and their crosses had lined the highways. So when he said, take up a cross, they knew he was talking about death. He wasn't talking about an inconvenience or a burden. You know, we use the phrase, oh, it's just the cross I have to bear so flippantly. To Jesus' hearers, the cross was serious business. It was a cruel instrument of death and nothing less. And for Jesus to say, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me, was to say that unless someone was willing to follow Jesus to death, he wasn't worthy to follow him at all. He wasn't worthy to be called a disciple. It's all or nothing when we call him Lord. Either we mean it or we don't. And if we mean it, there can be no limit to his lordship, to our commitment to him. We're willing even to die for him. Now, throughout the centuries, many have demonstrated their commitment to Christ by dying the martyr's death. And just last November, a number of Iraqi children were killed by ISIS militants when they refused to convert to Islam, boldly declaring, no, we love Jesus. And we've been getting reports about the craziness in Oregon. None of us have been so tested. None of us have had to demonstrate our commitment to Christ by literally taking up a cross. So how do we demonstrate our willingness to do so? Well, I think Jesus gave the answer in chapter 16 when he repeated the call to take up the cross and said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. Self-denial is the way we demonstrate our willingness to take up our cross on a day-to-day -day basis. We may never be required to physically die on a cross, but we are expected to crucify self. In fact, in Romans 6, Paul makes it very clear that when we were baptized into Christ, we were demonstrating our willingness to die with Christ, to be buried with Christ. 
to crucify self. And as he said in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in Galatians 5, he said those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To take up our cross means, at the very least, that we crucify self. Now, obviously, that goes counter to our self-centered, psychologized society that advocates self-actualization, self-acceptance, self-esteem, self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-assertion, and self-confidence. Jesus goes on to say, He who finds his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. In Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, he's recorded in saying, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. In Luke 17, whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. And in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. The point he's making is that if we put self first and build our life around gratifying self, we're going to lose everything in the end. The only way to find life, eternal life, life with eternal significance, is to willingly give it up. Jim Elliott, a missionary who gave his life trying to reach the Aka Indians in South America, said before he went, A man is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We don't find self-fulfillment by being selfish. We find it by self-denial. By denying self, taking up our cross, and following after Christ. Jesus knew that. So he came bringing a sword, a cross, and a reward. Continuing on. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. You know, the fact that Jesus brings a sword and a cross doesn't mean service to him will go unrewarded. On the contrary, we can endure the pain of a sword and the death of a cross because we know our reward will be great. Jesus affirmed the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. On account of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Now, do notice where 
the reward will be found. It's in heaven. In heaven. And that reward will be so great that whatever we may have to go through now will be less than nothing compared to the magnificent future God has planned for us. Paul makes that clear in J.B. Phillips' translation of Romans 8, 18, my favorite verse. And Jesus made it clear in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for his name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. There's a sense here that some reward will come in this life, as well as the big reward in the next life. So we will be rewarded. And, interestingly, so will those who receive us. Instead of fighting against us, those who receive us will share our reward. We're not going to be left with nothing, and neither will they, even here. In fact, in, in Mark 10, 29 through 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and brothers and children and farm along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Reward will come. Even now, even in this present age, we will be given homes and families. Now, that's not a promise that we're going to get a new fancy house if we become a Christian. It's not a promise that our family is going to be the perfect family with the perfect bumper sticker. But he's saying something pretty significant. He says, even in this present age, we'll be given homes and families through those who receive us, who accept us, who participate with us, and that those who do so will be rewarded for so receiving us into their lives. Those who receive us as prophets and enter into our ministry by supporting us in the proclamation of the word will share our reward. Those who receive us as righteous men and women who acknowledge that we are right and have been made right with God and help us stand for righteousness in the world will share our reward. And those who assist even the humblest disciple with simple acts of kindness will share in the disciples' reward. Now, this isn't teaching that we earn our reward by good works and doing good things for God's people. You know, nothing we could ever do in direct service to Christ or through the ministry of others could ever offset the debt of sin we owe. All rewards are gifts of God's grace. We deserve none of them. What this is merely affirming is the fact that all those who are willing to enter 
in the Lord's service, on the front lines or in the trenches or from the supply depot, will be rewarded for their service. Jesus brings a reward, and his reward is great. If we'll accept the sword and the cross, we'll get the reward. So what will it cost me to follow the Lord? Everything. All that I own, all that I am, all that I love. That is the price I must pay. That is the price I will pay. I trust you will too. Let's express that to God as we stand and sing.